Welcome to each of you. I'm Brian Frazier, and this is Journey to the Stage. This is episode number 24, and there's only one more episode left in the season, which I'm quite excited about. Season two will be starting to record in early October with episodes starting to drop mid-October, and I've already got some great guests lined up, so stay tuned for that. You know, I'm just an everyday guy who loves music and has the honor of traveling a stretch of road with gifted artists like the one I have with us today. Joining me on the front porch for a glass of sweet tea and conversation is singer-songwriter Rain Perry. Rain has a brand new album out called The White Album, which is a beautiful collection of songs that uh, we're going to, and we're going to play a couple of those as we chat uh, about her journey a little bit. Rain, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to Journey to the Stage. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Brian. And a big old thank you to our mutual friend, Wendy Brentford-Jones, for connecting us. We appreciate that. I learned something really cool about you as I was prepping, and we have something in common. We were both born in Hollywood. Which uh-huh. you're, I think the first person I met. <laughs> wow. Cool. You're the, you're the second. The first would be my brother. So the club isn't too exclusive because my brother's in it. (laughs) So we're going to play a couple of songs from your album here in a few minutes. I want to learn a little bit about your journey. Let's jump into the the Wayback Machine and land in the family room of your childhood home. What bands and artists would we hear if, if we were to show up then? Well, first of all, there were many childhood homes, so there wouldn't be just one. I moved a lot, but the music would be... My mom was a songwriter and she listened to lots of, of music, Joni Mitchell, Judy Collins, you know, that she was into. Uh, my dad uh, was was obsessed with Bob Dylan and all the 70s, you know, singer-songwriter era people, you know, like James Taylor and Carole King and Randy Newman. I, I think the common thread amongst all of them was was uh, the craft of songwriting. You know, these were just really great songwriters mm-hmm. that I grew up listening to. That era of music was incredible because there were so many great writers, everybody that you mentioned to a person. And the the ability to craft was such a great focus for those writers that it's, that's not surprising that you grew up with those singer songwriters because that definitely comes out in your own music. That's uh, something I definitely would aspire to. So, and your mom was a songwriter. That's what, what type of music was she, was she writing kind of in the singer songwriter? Yeah. I mean, she actually had a song recorded by Nancy Sinatra. That was her uh, breakthrough. It's a song called Kind of a Woman. And it's very Nancy Sinatra. It's super cool. But my mom, um, when I was really young, joined a fundamentalist hippie church. And she turned her back on popular music and, and the world in a lot of ways. And after that, all of her songs were religious. Her mm-hmm. craft remained great. Um, her subject matter became just that. And she passed away when I was very young. And I always wonder, you know, what would have become of her career wise if she had gone a a different direction because she was a really good writer. 
But what it did for me was teach me, you can be a writer, you know, as a woman and as a mom. And that was something that I really learned from that. Now, if we were to go back to your childhood home or wherever you were in kind of your teenage years and stood up at your bedroom door, you know, what would you be listening to? What what kind of bands and artists were you getting into? (laughs) I would be listening to The Clash and I would be listening to, I had really, I had a lot of (laughs) <laughs> I'd listen to The Clash and Billy Joel and <laughs> listen to, um, oh, yeah. yeah, and I listen to, I mean, I just, I, I've always gravitated to just about anyone who I think is, is good. I really was into The Pretenders a lot. I always was a big fan of the singer-songwriters, even into high school. I loved Elvis Costello also. I liked the energy of punk rock music, but I loved singer-songwriters too. I also was a big Springsteen and remain a big Springsteen fan. Just good songs, good songs in many, in many genres. I'm with you there. To me, if it's good, I like it. And I, I know good is obviously a subjective term. If there's a good melody to it, I don't care what kind of genre it is. I, I'm really drawn to it. And it sounds like you really are kind of in the same vein. Yeah, totally. I really want people to hear. Yeah, I want people to hear some of the beautiful music they've made if, if they haven't heard it yet. We're going to listen to Melody and Jack. Before we play it, what story does this song tell? This song, and it's the first song on this record, a white album. And it's a story that my grandmother told me, my mom's mom. Because I spent a lot of time around that my grandmother when I was a kid. As I was working on the songs for this record and looking back at my childhood through this lens of of it being a white childhood, because that's what this record is, is is me looking at my own life, my own family through the lens of having grown up white. So I was just looking back at stories and thinking about just just doing a lot of journaling and thinking about it. And I remembered my grandmother telling me about my mom and her group of friends when they when she was a little kid up in Vallejo and cause my grandfather worked at the Mare Island shipyard. And so they lived up there. She was, I think, I don't know if she was born up there, but anyway, they lived up there. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother told me that in this, you know, they had this little group of friends and one of the kids was black. And she told me about him telling her, my grandmother, that he was in love with my mom and wanted to marry her someday. And they, they're like nine years old. I mean, it wasn't like wow. a serious thing, but Um, (laughs) I just remembered, yeah, a little kid crush, you know, but, um, but I remembered, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I thought again, looking back at, you know, my grandmother always seemed like a little worried when she told me this story and I didn't really understand it because for me, it just sort of seemed like, well, obviously it was forbidden and that's kind of sad, but later reflecting back, I realized, oh, no, it's not just that. This is the same era as what happened to Emmett Till. This little boy was at risk saying something like that to a white mom. Uh, my grandmother was a kind person and, and accepting person, but she might not have been. So that put the story in a different light when I looked at it in historical context. So that's what this song is. That's a powerful story to tell. Let's give a listen. Picture a shipyard town in California after the war. Salt air and daffodils, and everybody on the edge of war. At the clothesline, my nana keeps an eye as my mom, Melody, and her friends go. Out. 
which meant one of them was black And then her face got strange as she told me about Jack In her kitchen one day When the rest had gone to play He smiled at my nana And this is what he
there's a real calming in your music, particularly in this song. And I think that's so needed in our lives today. You, you have a real beautiful sense of melody. W oh, when you write, you. do you hear a melody in your head that you work to express on your instrument? Or do you hear a mel melody as you're playing? Or is it something else when you're writing? It starts with the words always. It's always start. It always starts with some phrase or or an idea, a, lyric, a lyrical idea or a conceptual idea. <clears throat> but the music comes pretty quickly along with it. I write in my head. I I have I have rheumatoid arthritis, and I've I've had that since I was twenty two. So I haven't played the guitar since then. So I have learned how to write in my head. And now with my iPad, you know, I can, I can do a demo that has pretty much any part that I can think of. I figure out the melody in my head and later go back and figure out what the chords are, you know, when I have to write a chart for the first time or when I'm recording a demo. I had read that about your arthritis and I know that could be just terribly painful and, and debilitating. And obviously there's a, a range in, in severity, but for you to be able to adapt your songwriting is pretty incredible. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's severe, but luckily um, the, the treatments for it have really improved over the course of me having oh, it. Great. I mean, for the first, yes, for the first 10 years or so, it was really pretty bad. And I wasn't really sure how I was going to have a career or anything, you know, the treatments got pretty good. And though I can't play an instrument in a way, it's been kind of a mixed blessing because, or, you know, mixed because I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't that great of a player anyway. And it, I was never a shredder, you know, <laughs> I just played well enough to kind of <laughs> accompany myself while I would sing. I, you know, that was all I ever right. really wanted to do. And, and being able to focus on just the singing and the writing and have far better musicians than I ever was uh, play the music has been kind of freeing performance wise. And I don't have to write just what I can play. I can write whatever I can hear in my mind. So yeah, I love the fact that technology really allows you to do that. And it's interesting because I've talked with a couple of other musicians that try to write melody in their head as opposed to on an instrument because because of muscle memory getting on an instrument can really change the melody of the song and dictate in some ways because that muscle memory where a melody might go so they default to something familiar right right and i i love the fact that you've you've found a way that works well for you and it's and very beautifully done thank you um, so what was it if you were to go back to the first time you, you, you picked up a, a guitar, um, what was it that made you want to to pick that instrument up and then want to put a, a melody and, and lyrics to that? What inspired you to do that? You know, it was always around me, um, both my mom playing music from, the, you know, before I was born. So always playing music. She played piano and guitar and wrote songs on whichever one was right for the song she was writing. And that's how I was too. I mean, I was never really super proficient on either one, but I would gravitate towards either one, depending on what the song felt like it needed. And um, my dad also was really into music and, and uh, gave me his guitar when, when I was pretty young and was expressing an interest. 
I think I wrote my first song when I was like in the fifth grade or something. And, you know, I mean, if I had to psychoanalyze myself, I'd say in one way, it was a way for me to stay close to my mom, I think. But also just Mm. it was around me. Everyone was playing music. You know, I grew up after I moved with my dad, we moved out to Marin County in a little town called Inverness. And um, every, all the hippies were playing music all the time. It was just everywhere. And so it was just natural. It didn't yeah. feel like an odd choice. And that is something that, you know, as I've gotten older, I realized that, that wasn't exactly everybody's life. For me, it was totally natural and accepted and encouraged. Uh, but that is not true for everybody. So I got really grateful about that when I realized that it's actually kind of rare. Well, and that really, I think, must drive your sense of melody, which is beautiful. And for people who are new to your music, you've got a great catalog, too. Once once people listen to your new album, I would encourage people, because I think you got five other albums, I think, uh, besides uh, the new one. I have a, a discography by now. Yep. <laughs> That's super cool. I, I love that. And, you know, a lot of artists can't make that claim. But you're also, here's what's interesting, you're also a filmmaker. So as I was researching, I come across this documentary you've made a few years back. Tell us about that, because I think that is actually pretty cool. And I love somebody who has varied uh, artistic interests and outlets. So tell us about the the film that you made. Sure. Yeah, the the film is called The Shopkeeper. And it's a documentary about the, the changes in the music business because of the shift to streaming music. It's not anything I ever intended to do, make a movie. <laughs> it uses producer, music producer Mark Hallman, who is my producer. He also produced a number of records for Carol King. And Ani DeFranco did like a dozen albums in his studio. Through mutual acquaintances, I, after I did my first kind of do-it-yourself record in the year, gosh, 2000, okay, I was working on the next record, which was this big sort of concept album about my hippie childhood through some mutual friends. I was introduced to him and we just totally hit it off. And I've done every record since with him. And he had this recording studio in Austin called the Converse house, which was the oldest continuously operating recording studio in Austin. And we were talking about it, he and I one time and I, and I said, well, how long has the Converse house been there? And he said over 30 years, I think he goes, in fact, I think we're, kind of coming up on the 33 and a third anniversary. I said, um, for you kids who don't know, that's the speed at which a record rotates. But anyway, and so I I was like, Mark, you got to do something about this. Like you need to have a party or do something, you know, this is a big deal because he's very self-deprecating. It's like, okay, okay. And then, uh, you know, then it was like, well, maybe have a concert or just have a party. And then the idea came up that somebody should film the party and, then he's like, well, maybe you should do it. And, and I'm like, I make a, I mean, I don't, I don't know about that. And I just had a record coming out right then, my album men. And so it just seemed like, no, I can't, I can't get derailed into some completely new thing I've never done before. Right. Now. I have a record that I need to promote, but when the record started to come out, I began to see very clearly the shift in the music business like I had worked so hard to to build this indie career for myself. And I'd gotten this, this song uh, placed as a theme song on a network TV show. Like I was starting to get somewhere. And yeah. then this new, new record came out and like nothing was happening. And I, I felt like I'd finally gotten to this 
to this finish line and there was nothing there. There was no like finish line even anymore. Like I'd gone the whole way and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it was gone and people weren't buying music anymore. And I just, it was, it was kind of demoralizing. And that emotion made me think, okay, now I understand what the story is. And actually Mark is the right person to tell this story through because you know, he was there for the, the height of the singer-songwriter era and the music business uh, era in the late 60s, early 70s. And he was there through the mm-hmm. do-it-yourself do era of Ani DeFranco that, you know, she was making her name with records in his studio. And then now through the steam, streaming era, trying to keep the doors open now that people don't buy music anymore. And finally, you know, this last year, they finally tore it down, which is very, very sad. But that also is paying for helping pay for his retirement. So it's kind of the natural life of this studio. Anyway, so the movie tells the story of the arc of the music business through him and through the people who have worked in his studio over the years. And I made it with um, just one other person, my uh, director of photography, this young, really talented filmmaker named Micah Van Hove. And we were just a crew of two. We shot this thing as, <laughs> as gorilla as you possibly could. And that's, that's an important story to tell. And it comes through many different people. And I yeah. think listeners who love streaming have no idea the impact most people haven't bought albums in forever but you forget that yeah people have this feeling that the money's getting to artists somehow and they really don't understand how fundamentally different it's not like the change from records to cassettes or to cds uh, because those were just different formats within the same basic or even the shift to, to downloading music but streaming has fundamentally changed everything. And it is what it is. I mean, you can't really, you can't unring the bell, but, but I do think it's good for music listeners to understand why it's so different and how, and how much that's changed the lives of the artists that they listen to. Right. And then everybody down the road or down the line in the, in the process of production, the producer, the engineer, you know, it, the impact is far and wide. I have a lot of friends who are musicians and yeah, it's a very different world And your, your career as a, as an artist spans over 20 years. So you, you've lived through the shift and, uh, and yeah, it, it can be very, very difficult for an indie artist to, and because everybody's doing it right. There's so much new music out there that it's, it's difficult to cut through and find an audience. And I mean, I find the same thing as a, as a podcaster, I'm constantly pushing how do I get my podcast in front of more people? So it's a challenge. Now you're also an author. We have, you have quite a, quite a resume. Tell us about your book and then we're going to listen to another cut from your album. I wrote a book and an album. The book was never actually published, but, but the writing for the book became the base for a a play. Oh, I see. Okay. I gotcha. I wrote a a one woman show with music called Cinderblock Bookshelves, which was a memoir of growing up with my dad and kind of larger themes of, you know, coming to terms with your parents for better, or for worse, and, and appreciating your, your messed up family. You know, it became a, a, a touring theatrical thing with, with music and, and I toured it with a guitar player. Yeah. Well, I want to listen to another cut from your album. This song is called the money. 
let's check it out and then we'll talk about it when we're done. Great. Brothers in arms, one black, one white, ready to put the same money down in Daly City or Levittown. But the Federal Housing Administration requires racial separation if the lender wants to get insured, so they each buy a house, just not next door. Both men start a family while the white GI builds equity. So when their kids are almost grown, guess which dad can get a college loan? So we end housing discrimination and there's no more legal segregation, but the wedge between these sons of soldiers widens as they each get older. Cause the white GI's kid goes to college and what he gains is not just knowledge, he gets connections, opportunity that he passes along to his family, like little sayings about rainy days and the fortune that will come your way if you work hard. But now I see those rules were made for my grandpa and for me. So yeah, we gotta talk about the money. We gotta talk about the money, you bet. We gotta talk about the money. We gotta talk about the money. The best things in life are free. It's not about
this song has a little bit of a bluesy feel to it. it it's definitely a protest song. Mm-hmm. It really could have come out of the 60s. I, I, I love what you're saying here. Tell us about what you wanted to accomplish and portray in this song. Sure. Yeah, happy to. I was talking to a friend of mine who teaches high school history, and this was a few years ago, and she was telling me about the real estate practice of redlining, uh, which is where whole neighborhoods were, they had maps, city maps, the U.S. government through the Department of Housing. They drew up these maps, and they literally drew red lines and blue lines and yellow lines and green lines around whole neighborhoods based on risk and perceived risk. So neighborhoods that were considered risky for banks were redlined. And what I didn't understand, but my friend explained to me was those maps were not just racist at the time that they that, that policy existed, but have contributed to wealth inequalities for decades since. And the reason is that when soldiers, sailors came back from World War II, they got the GI Bill, which was the ticket to the middle class for, for American mm-hmm. service members. They came back and they got this money and these really low interest loans where they were able to enter the housing market to start to build the American dream and join the middle class. And it was a really wonderful program for a lot of people. But the problem was that even though they got the same amount of money from the GI Bill, you know, white GIs could buy houses in more affluent neighborhoods, not even affluent, but just white neighborhoods. And then black GIs couldn't buy houses in those same neighborhoods. So the next generation rolls around and, you know, the, the house in the white neighborhood is worth more. The one in the black neighborhood, not worth more. Next generation rolls around. You want to send your kid to college. You're able to take a loan out against your equity for college loan. And it just snowballs. And it helped me understand, mm-hmm. you know, even though we're so many years after the Fair Housing Act and and those kinds of laws are illegal now and have been, it's just it perpetuates this problem that's almost impossible for people to overcome. I wrote a little ditty kind of along the lines of like silly love songs or something with like multiple parts. And I don't know where it came from. I just, for some reason, this seemed like the right song to write about it. So that's what I did. Well, and that's the beauty of an album because a lot of artists today are only releasing singles because Mm. of the streaming world. But when you write an album and you've got nine songs on this album, you have the ability to tell a variety of stories. And I love the fact that you are, it's a, it's a protest song and it's a song that you, I would imagine want to raise awareness to this issue. And I think, I think that's an incredible thing. It's one of the beautiful things that music allows us to do to get a message out to people that they might not otherwise hear. There's another um, real favorite of mine on your album. It's walk me out in the morning. Do we don't have time to play it, but this to me is a song that you can put your headphones on, put in your earbuds and get lost in the music. It's that type of song to me. <laughs> well, Morning Dew is a song written by Bonnie Dobson in the early 60s and has been covered by everybody. The Grateful Dead, Robert Plant, The National. Oh, really? I have never heard it before. I don't know how I've missed this. Yeah, it's just one of those songs. It's actually just like, yeah. And she wrote it as kind of a little folk song. And it was recorded by Jeff Beck, kind of a more rock and roll version. And in fact, this other guy named Tim Rose claimed that he, 
that he had a songwriting credit on it, even though all he did was cover the Jeff Beck version or, or not the Jeff Beck, but some other more rock and roll version. So she's been involved in a lawsuit yeah. about it for decades. Anyway, setting that aside, oh, the song okay. is a story of two deadheads who become, you know, who are really close and then their lives diverge as they hit adulthood. And one of them, the white one, is able to go off to college and the other one has to go to work. He's Hispanic. This song is, the verses I wrote for the song are about these two guys. And Bonnie Dobson gave me permission to release it with my new verses. And it was a whole legal thing to get permission to do that, but it finally worked out and she's been really lovely. And I got the chance to actually meet her in London where she lives a couple wow. months ago, we had breakfast. She cooked breakfast for my husband and me. She's lovely. She's 80. Totally cool. Wow. Um, still performing. Gotcha. So for those of you listening, you can add Rain's new album to your library and then check this song out because it is, it's a gem. Um, so let's talk about how people can get into your music can learn more about you if they don't know your, your work already. I know you've got a website that we'll link and that is uh, rain perry p-e-r-r-y dot com and are you on the streaming platforms where, where could we where could we go Bandcamp. let's talk about those things yeah i'm everywhere i'm on Bandcamp. Bandcamp is the store i use through my own website because they're just very artist friendly and give you the ability to also sell merchandise and and put the lyrics and everything so i, I love Bandcamp. But I'm on Spotify and Apple Music, everywhere people listen. And what you know, I've come to <laughs> I've come to peace with the streaming services in a way. I'm also on social media. I'm pretty active. And we'll put all of those links in the show notes for everybody. So connecting on social media is a great way to keep up with an artist if they've got new releases, new albums, singles, if they're doing dates, if they've got new merch. It's just a great way to keep up with what's going on. And I highly encourage people swing through Bandcamp. Uh, I'll put a link to to Rain's Bandcamp storefront right on on our show notes as well. If you like what you hear, buy a download of her new album. It uh, will help her to make her next project and keep her going as an artist. And um, I strongly encourage that. And I make a habit of saying every time you support an indie artist, an angel earns their wings. So, <laughs> okay, Rain. So before we wrap, we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to play a game called holy hypothetical Batman. It's a terrible name, Love but it's it. all I could come up with. So this is just a, a, a few <laughs> hypothetical questions for you to see how you do. You can't, don't overthink these, but hopefully they'll be kind of fun for you. Okay. So if you could be on one, one TV show, either past or present, which show would you be on and why? Let's do Saturday Night Live in 1979. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can be a musical guest, but also appear in in, in a sketch or two. But we'll go oh, with nice. that. So Belushi would have been there, I think, right? And um, absolutely, yeah. Gilda Radner, oh. Dan Aykroyd, yeah. Yes. So if you could play one venue in the world to a packed house, any venue, any country, mm. anywhere, packed house, which venue would you choose? <sighs> oh wow! Okay, um, I think it has to be Carnegie Hall. I mean, it's New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Carnegie Hall. If yeah. you could write one song with one songwriter, who would you choose? Randy Newman. <laughs> oh, nice. 
he's he's it as far as songwriters go in in my view nice my brother and i were at the rock and roll hall of fame induction show when he was inducted it was in la oh gosh oh six years ago so i've you know i lose track of time but that's the year he was he was uh, inducted and uh so that was that was wow. a lot of fun it was cool to be there all right here's the last one if you could go back in time to see a band or artist who doesn't perform any longer who would you want to see well it's interesting because the person i'm going to pick suddenly just performed but it would be Joni Mitchell. I never saw her live. And now she just played the show that everyone's sharing all the videos of at the, at the Newport Folk Festival with everyone. But um, until last week, it, I would have been able to say her, but she does perform. Yeah, I just saw video from, from that show as well. Um, Paul Simon did a small set as well, and he's, he's one of my musical heroes. Uh, it was oh, good to yeah. see him up there. Well, Rain, I am so glad you joined me on the front porch today. You're great to chat with. Thank you so much. Ah, oh, thank you. I really appreciate the chance to talk about it and to talk with you. It really, it was great. Awesome. And to those listening, look up Rain Perry on your uh, on Bandcamp or on your streaming platform choice. Add her album to your library. Give it a listen. Add your favorite cuts to a playlist and tell your friends. Help get the word out. This is how we support indie artists who don't have marketing budgets and all of these types of things. That's the world of music we live in today. And you can help Rain by sharing the word and getting, helping get the word out for her great music. So thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation and the music we've highlighted, feel free to share any kind reviews, ratings, help keep an indie podcaster like me encouraged and helps get the word out. So keep your bags packed so you can join us on our next journey to the stage. And that is a wrap.